This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds and Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how inadequate data may be impacting your used vehicle department at reyrey.com slash used cars. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y.com slash used dash cars. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, December 4th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Ford sales dip in November. The used EV market is growing, but models aren't holding their value. And dealers see lower profits from finance and insurance products. Plus, Carnegie Mellon University professor Philip Copeman has been an outspoken critic of the safety records of self-driving companies. He joins us to talk about Cruz's recent troubles. As they were scaling, something bad was going to happen. It's inevitable. And the question is, where was the industry going to be in terms of the public trust they had at the moment? Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Ford vehicle sales in the U.S. dipped slightly last month. Strong electric vehicle deliveries couldn't overcome the sharp decline of popular models such as the Bronco SUV, which were hurt by the UAW strike earlier this fall. Ford said EV sales rose 43 percent compared with the same period a year ago. Hybrid sales jumped 75 percent and gas powered vehicle sales fell six and a half percent. Meanwhile, Subaru says November sales were up almost 6.5%, its 16th consecutive increase. The automaker saw big gains for two of its top sellers, the Crosstrek and Forester. As of recording time, we're still waiting for November results from Volvo. You can find the latest sales results at autonews.com. Electric vehicles are beginning to make headway into the used vehicle market, but they're having a tough time holding their value. According to data from Cox Automotive, EVs have more than doubled their presence on the wholesale market in the past two years. They've grown to more than 14,500 sales, or 1.7% of the market last quarter. That's compared with about 6,500 wholesale sales, or 0.7% of the market, during the third quarter of 2021. But the proceeds from those EV lots might be disappointing. BlackBook predicts used EV prices will continue to fall as new EV prices drop. Value retention among EVs has weakened in the past several months. BlackBook says it expects that to continue with the recent price wars on new EV models. All but one of the public franchise dealership groups saw lower finance and insurance gross profit in the third quarter. Only AutoNation saw an increase, and that was a minuscule 0.1%. Asbury saw same-store F&I gross profit per vehicle fall furthest, down 12%. The groups mainly pointed to interest rates as the culprit, which was also the case in the second quarter. Higher interest rates and vehicle costs have strained consumers' pocketbooks in recent months. Some finance managers are saying that has pushed more buyers to pay cash, cutting into F&I profits. And banks continue to tighten or maintain their standards on auto loans during the third quarter. Consumer demand for such debt also fell during the period. 
That's according to the Federal Reserve's latest quarterly survey of senior loan officers. Only one of 48 banks surveyed had eased their requirements for borrowers in the three months leading up to the study, which ran from September 25th to October 5th. Eight of the banks had tightened their policies, and the rest left their buy boxes unchanged. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, it looks like we've entered some uncharted territory. EVs are making their way onto the used car market, but they're not holding value. I want to look at this from a positive outlook. Does this help people who still can't afford new EVs get introduced to the market? Yeah, it's definitely has some risks for retailers, you know, who are holding used EVs, as we've seen with retailers who have a lot of uh, regular <laughs> who have new EVs on their lots. It's, you know, a little perilous for them, but sure, you know, more affordable EVs, EVs that are coming down in price and the used market, you know, that might give people more confidence to you know, buy the vehicle, maybe put a charger in their home if they have a garage or a safe place to, to put one. Definitely should improve adoption of EVs. Let's not forget, one of the big hurdles on the IRA's used EV tax credit was the price cap. You know, a lot of EVs that started off in the $80,000, $100,000 price range, really hard for those to get down to the $25,000 level, uh, which is the maximum for a used EV to qualify for a tax credit. If the prices keep coming down and get more into that affordable, you know, fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollar level, that's going to make it a lot easier for people to get into them. Gotcha. Coming up, we'll hear from Carnegie Mellon professor Philip Copeman, who says Cruz's recent safety crisis should come as no surprise. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here, and it's accelerating, but. Is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Lack of inventory, increased auction fees, and a volatile market means stocking your lot can be challenging these days. To be successful, you have to move fast. You need to make decisions quickly at auction. You need to inspect trade-ins and decide on an offer that will benefit you without slowing down the sales process. You need to appraise and price vehicles with the most up-to-date information possible in a market that can change quickly. But the data you rely on to make these decisions could be holding you back. How often do you find yourself manually filtering through comps because there are outliers that don't match the vehicle you're appraising? When unexpected mechanical issues come up, how much time do you have to spend looking back through comps to reprice the vehicle and determine if the reconditioning costs are worth it? 
How long do you spend searching through individual auction and third-party websites for the inventory you need? These problems affect the entire used vehicle process from acquisition to appraisal to merchandising. Visit rayray.com slash used cars to explore how old and irrelevant vehicle information may be holding you back and discover how to make improvements for faster, more accurate, and more profitable decisions. That's rey.com slash used dash cars. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. General Motors' robo-taxi unit Cruise is finding itself in an existential crisis after a crash in San Francisco that injured a pedestrian. It has since seen its self-driving permits suspended and its CEO, Kyle Vogt, resign. Philip Copeman has been sounding alarms about safety issues surrounding self-driving companies, including Cruise, for years. Copeman is an electrical and computer engineering professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He spoke with Automotive News Innovation and Tech team leader Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of their conversation. Phil, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you again. Thanks. Great to be back. You know, in preparation for today's uh, podcast, I went back and listened to your previous appearance, which was on episode 88 um, in March 2021. And wow. what's, what's <laughs> That's a while back. <laughs> it is a while back. A few things have changed. A few have, but a few have not. What surprised me was actually that so many of the questions are are the same in the autonomous driving realm in terms of you know, what can you do as a supervisory slash backup driver in level three? How safe is safe enough? I was going to ask you if it feels like Groundhog Day in some respect, uh, you know, as you talk about these issues on a, on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, although it'll feel more like it in February, but yeah, I, I see where you're going. <laughs> well, to your point, I think some things have changed and specifically Cruise and perhaps the self-driving industry overall are kind of facing an existential moment right now. Uh, and that is what I wanted to discuss with you today. I think that's fair. Some of us probably saw that coming a while back, but it feels different when you're actually there. Do you say that in terms of Cruise specifically or the industry overall? The industry overall. As they were scaling, something bad was going to happen. It's inevitable. And the question is, where was the industry going to be in terms of the public trust they had at the moment the bad thing happened? And what was the reaction going to be? I like to use the analogy, was the trust bank account full or was it overdrawn? <laughs> when a bad thing happens, I mean, it's sad, it's unfortunate, it's tragic, a bad thing happens, it will eventually happen. And if your trust bank account is full, then you can say, hey, everybody, we're, we're good actors here. You know, We've done everything right. It's very sad, unfortunate, bad things happen. But Everyone knows that we're here to do the right thing and, and we'll we'll move on together. The other outcome is you have a bad reputation, you know, got a lot of problems in the marketplace and something bad happens and it's just another stone thrown on top of the pile. And I think we're a little closer to that second scenario, at least with Cruise, than the first one. And that's why I've been working on the topic of trust for quite a while, because you have to have that trust built up. And, and that's kind of not where Cruise was. And the rest of the industry is in various different points on that scale. But, you know, ultimately, they talk about rebuilding trust. They're absolutely right. Uh, it's all about trust in the end. To broaden this up for a second, you said the rest of the industry is somewhere on that scale. Uh, is this an industry-wide trust problem right now? And where does Cruise play into that? Does Cruise hurt the industry uh, or does the incident that they had? hurt the industry overall? 
Well, the incident clearly hurts the industry. There's a saying in the plane business, when a plane crashes, it doesn't matter whose paint is on the side of the plane. The headline says plane crash, right? And, and so that effect is clearly at work. Uh, but what you also have is the industry as a whole has been doing a lot of lobbying and making a lot of public relations maneuvers that are putting themselves in a bad position for this kind of event. They don't do transparency. They lobby very heavily for extremely favorable operating conditions. That means cities around the country have no say in what happens on their roads because the state's preempted them. And, and that's not a cruise thing. That's an industry playbook thing. And so the industry is, is working in all these ways that really degrade trust. Uh, and so when something bad happens to any company, you know, they've got go that going against them. Now, there, there are some places where some of the companies have started publishing safety studies showing how they're safer. But I would argue even the conversation they're trying to have is something that will inevitably bite them when something like this happens. And that's actually how it's playing out. I want to just jump on the the aspect that they've antagonized as a as an industry the cities where they're deploying. I mean, uh, you get if you get the entire city of San Francisco upset at you, you're probably not doing something right on community engagement. Do you think? Right, there people are coning cars, and uh, you know you have SFMTA and other regulators and city councilmen who have all spoken out against you right. trying to find ways to circumvent the preemption from the state. It yeah. shocks me in a way that the approach has been so short-sighted to go after those state laws that preempt cities. And, and that's not like, one company. They're upset at all the robo-taxis right. yes. for, for whatever mix of reasons. And to be clear, there's some people in San Francisco who like the technology, think it's cool. So it's not every single citizen in San Francisco, but they manage to get the government upset at them. And that's just, why would you antagonize the regulator? I mean, well, I, and they they fix that by going around the regulator and saying, you have no power, we're going to go to the state. And you know, it, it all gets complicated, but why would you dig yourself that hole? Because now you're stuck down in the bottom of it when something bad happens. And it's interesting that uh, cities are starting to find ways around that, I think, with, all right, we're going to regulate the electricity going to your uh, your depot where you need to charge these vehicles. Or the, you, know, you have them actively searching for ways, whether that holds or not, to grasp some sort of power in this in this relationship. You don't really want to make someone who should be your collaborator into an opponent and then make them desperate. Right. That's just a bad idea. Now, others, other cities have different things. So one of the things that's a problem in California is they can't give tickets to an uncrewed vehicle. But in Texas, it turns out they can. So that's going to be interesting. We'll keep an eye on the uh, traffic enforcement in Austin. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. So recapping what Cruz has done in the wake of the both the incident on October 2nd and and the fallout that ensued, there's there's obviously been a lot of changes. They've replaced their top two executives who resigned last week. They've announced they intend to hire a permanent chief safety officer. They've commissioned a uh, technical review from Exponent. They've commissioned a third-party review of their safety uh, culture. They've paused national operations. So, so just 30,000-foot view right now. Like, how's Cruz's response so far in your mind? Well, they're responding. They're doing things. There's a piece of that that's all missing you know, and, and maybe it's in progress and we haven't heard. I, I don't know, right? But they paused operations. The crash is October 2nd. They should have paused operations October 3rd, if not October 2nd, right? That was a really excessively long delay. And that is going to hurt trust for sure. And and all the, the allegations with DMV, you know, we don't want to have to go there. But there's all sorts of reasons why lots of folks have trust issues at this point. 
But they did eventually stand down everything. That's great. You know, that was the right thing to do. Uh, and this is about, all right, so you realize you have a problem. Now let's take the right actions forward. So they, they granted the fleet. That's good. They're looking at their, their high-level management. You know, that's good. I'm, I'm not going to comment on who should be in charge because I, I care more about what happens than who's doing it personally. Uh, but what has to happen is I think, well, there's a, there's a this spectrum of what could happen. They could go, oh, yeah, one person made one bad decision. We fired the person and we're moving on. And I don't think that's going to get them there. From everything we've seen in the news, there are much deeper problems here. Uh, some of it having to do with pressure to get to market faster, to scale up faster, even though they have problems they can't fix before they scale of various sorts. I mean, that kind of vibe, right? So what do they need to do? Well, they need to do a top to bottom, no holds barred, complete with look at safety the way Uber ATG did after they had the testing fatality. And what we hear are pieces of that, but not the whole thing. So tell me about that. What did Uber do well after after their fatality in, in Tempe? So Uber initially tried the PR sloughing it off thing. They released a video with very questionable saying, see, you couldn't have told, seen anything. And that was just ridiculous. Okay. But, that fell but, apart very quickly. Yes. Yeah. That, that fell apart very quickly. They took a step back and said, no, we have to do better. Right. And that took a day or two, not weeks. Right. And they said, okay, ground the fleet. We have to step back. We have to figure out what's going on. And the lawyers did what the lawyers do. They cleaned up the, the issues at the moment. They did something which I'm which I think was not so good, which is they pinned it on the safety driver, is what you know, they got off the hook, they pinned it on the safety driver. I don't know if it was that obvious and direct, but that that's kind of how it turned out, right? Uh, so that was that was guilty. not great. Uh within the last three months, she uh that's right. Know, pled guilty to a lesser charge. I think it started with vehicular manslaughter. I forget what the the plea not, was, but not being a lawyer, I yeah, but yes, that that's it in essence, right? Uh, and and I think that's a travesty because I think it was going to happen to some safety driver, and it happened to happen to her, right? It, it just the environment was was conducive to that kind of outcome. So now where where we are here now? So there's no safety driver to blame. Okay, uh, there may or may not have been a remote operator involved. What they've said seems like probably there wasn't. But you have to ask the question anyway, because there might have been a remote operator mistake in another universe. And so you start asking these questions. Well, the next time something bad happens, are remote operators really up to it? Um, should that software release have been on the road? Did we actually think about this kind of scenario? If not, why not? What's our plan for other scenarios? What are the other scenarios we haven't thought about? Uh, was there too much pressure to get the software build out? Were we scaling up our operations too aggressively because we had a business target to hit when in fact we should have been going slower? Or if we think we were going the right amount of speed, why is it that when the bad thing eventually happened, everyone seemed to turn on us, right? So this goes all the way from operations to communications, to interface with regulators, to the internal engineering culture. Uh, and alignment on safety throughout. Are the engineers actually building to the same definition of safety that the marketers are selling? And there's all sorts of signs that this stuff is all misaligned within all the companies. I mean, you listen to the Waymo engineers and you listen to the Waymo government regulators, and it's like they're from different planets. They aren't telling the same story. I've been in those meetings. They're not telling the same story, okay? And, and so, and I mentioned Waymo because the other guy's operating robotaxis, but this is endemic to the industry that there's huge safety disconnects within companies and across companies. 
And so I think Chris really needs to take a look at that sort of alignment. Philip Copeman is an electrical and computer engineering professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He spoke with our own Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. You can hear their entire conversation on Shift wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own David Phillips, John Hutter, and Paige Hodder for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on innovation and technology, sales results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.